Hello, fellow innovators. I'm Patrick Emmons, and I'm thrilled to welcome you back to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with some of the most accomplished visionaries and leaders, providing you with unparalleled insights into the world of innovation within modern organizations. On today's episode, we're spotlighting our keynote speaker from the Innovative Executive League Summit. Mark Ackler, Managing Partner at Math Venture Partners, presented on the topic of the economics of trust. In this thought-provoking talk, Mark, a seasoned entrepreneur and venture capitalist, delves into the critical role that trust plays in the success of businesses. He shares insights on how companies that build and maintain trust over time are more likely to deliver superior results to their shareholders. Mark's extensive background in entrepreneurship, venture capital, and innovation uniquely positions him to explore this crucial topic. So let's get right to it. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick and Sandy and Lisa and Sienna back there. Thank you so much. And to our event sponsors, I couldn't do this without you. So thank you all. I have an investment thesis around trust. And trust is an important topic. So I'm a partner in a venture capital fund. Every day I'm talking to entrepreneurs who are pitching me. And I really, this is an area that I really focus on a great deal. And I believe that companies that have a culture of trust between themselves and their employees, their customers, their partners, will outperform over time. I believe that. But before I launch into my presentation, I want to go off rails for a second and tell you three quick stories and ask you a question. Okay, three quick stories. So story number one. So I wrote this book called Exit Right, How to Sell Your Business, Maximize Your Return, and Build Your Legacy. It took two years. It was a journey of love. And we were able to get a sponsor. So UBS, the big Swiss bank, became our sponsor. And for the past year and a half, it's been a phenomenal partnership. They've sent me all over the country doing talks. And a couple of months ago, I was in Nashville where they hosted a talk. And the talk was at the venue was a bar event center. And the bar had a policy that everybody had to get carded. Okay. So I go, I walk in to give my talk and the bouncer's there and he says, can I see your ID? Okay. So I gave him my Medicare card. The guy looks at me, he goes, smart ass. Yeah. <laughs> so that's story number one. And I'm going to go back when I'm done with this talk and I'm going to say, why did I tell these stories? So story number one. Story number two. A few weeks ago, my wife and I had our 41st wedding anniversary, 41 years. I know what you're thinking, thanks. You're thinking she put up with him for 41 years. And I don't know about you guys, but in my relationship at home, my wife is always cold and I'm always hot. So like, you know, we'll be sleeping. She's the one with three blankets and the comforter shivering and her feet are cold and I'm just with a sheet. 
And for 41 years, I'd be lying in bed, minding my own business, and she would take those cold feet and she'd put them right up against me. And it's like, okay. So my job in life, I understand my place. My job in life was to warm her feet up, right? Understood for 41 years. So last year I turned 65 and for the first time in my life, my feet were cold. Like last winter, my feet were cold and I go, oh, this is uncomfortable. Ah, I know what to do. I put my feet up against my wife. Whoa! What are you doing? I can't believe you did that. So rude. I'm always cold. Don't you know that? And I'm thinking to myself, 41 years. But of course, the words that come out of my mouth are, you're right. I'm so sorry. I don't know what I was thinking. That's story number two. Story number three. So this book I wrote, Exit Right, my joke is, if you're having trouble sleeping at night, you know, one or two pages, you're right. So it was a joy to write. My co-author is a guy named Myrta Sherry. He's 35 right now. I've known him for 12 years. I was his coach. I was his mentor. I helped him through the journey of his company, Swipe Sense, selling to SC Johnson. It was a pleasure. It was just so much joy to co-author a book with him. And my editor was my daughter, Emily. So Emily's 37. And as a dad, I got to spend two years on a really intense project working with an adult child in a whole nother light, in a whole nother perspective, working together on an intimate project. Like, oh, I, think I wish for you that you have that opportunity to do something like that. And our um, foreword was written by Brad Feld. I don't know if you know Brad Feld, famous author. He's written a great book called Venture Deals. And I asked Brad, I said, Brad's a good friend. And I said, Brad, which publisher should we use? And he said, I use Scribe. Great. Javon McCormick, he's the CEO. I'll put you in touch. And we did, we used Scribe, Javon was a great guy. And so we're writing the book, we're at the point of galleys. And by the way, if you've ever written a book, it took two years from the day we started to the day we finished. It's a long time. So the galleys are ready, the book is done. And I get a call from Javon. And Javon says, hey, I've got this crazy idea. I think books should have a sponsor. All forms of entertainment have sponsors, but books don't have sponsors. What do you think? Okay, I'm like, let's give it a try. He goes, okay, here's the deal. You know, I've tried it a couple times. I had one book, got a sponsor for like 100,000. Another book got a sponsor for a million. Let's cut a deal, it's 60-40. Whoever brings in the sponsor, if we're lucky enough to do so, you get 60%, I get 40%. And I look at him and I go, ah, you know, Javon, I'm a 50-50 kind of guy. Like, we're partners. Let's be partners. I don't care if I bring it in or, or if you bring it in, but let's just be partners. And so, of course, what I was thinking is, I have no idea what I'm doing. He's going to bring in if there is going to be a sponsor. But we shook hands. 
we wrote up the contract 50-50. Wouldn't you know it? I get an introduction to the vice chairman of UBS. UBS is the world's largest wealth manager. And I call her up and say, look, we just wrote a book for entrepreneurs who are about to sell their business and have a life altering event, hopefully. You're the world's largest wealth manager. Wouldn't you like to sponsor? And I got so lucky and it was a phenomenal partnership. Somebody, we had a couple of people at UBS who had vision. They agreed to sponsor. And I call up Javon. I was like, dude, we did it. Like UBS, sweet. And Javon says to me, okay, I'm going to give you 60%. You did it. I went, no, 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 no. It's like 50-50. That's our deal. We shook hands. I committed. I understood the risk. I got lucky. I'm the one who brought it in. 50-50. Javon said, nope, I'm giving you 60%. And that delta over and above was like $15,000. Okay. It's like, great. Javon, note to self. Good dude. Book is published. A year goes by. We make the Amazon bestsellers list. And I'm talking to Javon. We become good friends. And Javon says, hey, I just was at Stanford and MIT. I was giving a talk on my life story as a motivational speaker and talking about the scribe. It's now 140 employees. We just got voted the best place to work in America. It's like, I go, no way. I teach a class at Kellogg at Northwestern. My class is called Building Innovation Teams and Culture. You have to come speak to my class. So he agrees. This is last spring. He comes and speaks to the class. And right before he comes, you know, the royalty check, we got paid once every six months, was late by about four weeks. I go, well, you know, it's Javon. He's good for it. I trust him. So he comes to class. I don't say anything to him. And he tells his life story. Now, what I'm about to share with you is public information. He actually wrote a book about his life story. So everything I'm about to share is not confidential. So he gets up and he says to my class, yeah, my father was a pimp. My mother was a prostitute. I grew up with my dad taking me in the car, driving around collecting money. Now, students at Kellogg at Northwestern, this is not the typical speaker. You see everybody sort of sitting up a little bit straighter, leaning a little bit forward. Like, all right, they're in. He was sexually abused when he was eight. When he was 12, he was living with his mom and step-siblings who were six, four, and two, and the mom went out for a pack of cigarettes and never came back. And for a month, he was taking care of the siblings with no money, stealing food where he could. He was in and out of juvenile detention three times. And... He says, it wasn't summer camp. Like, juvenile detention is jail. By the time he's 22, he doesn't graduate high school, let alone college. He doesn't have a GED at the time. He changes his name from Javon to Jim because he thought he might be able to get interviews better with that name. And he gets really lucky and he gets an interview to be an entry-level salesperson for a software company. 
And he gets the job. And to him, he doesn't care how, uh, no, no, no. He goes, look, from the life I led, I don't care if I get no. I'll ask a thousand people before I get a yes. It makes no difference to me. And wouldn't you know it, within the first year, he was the top salesperson in the country for this software company. Within five years, he's the CRO, the chief revenue officer. He goes back to school, he gets his GED. Five more years go by, he becomes the CEO of this company. Company gets sold, he has an exit. He decides to write a book. He goes to this publishing company, Scribe, to write his book, this book, his story. And the two co-founders of Scribe fall in love with Javan, because he's that kind of guy. And they ask him to be CEO, and he becomes CEO of a publishing company. And he tells that story, and my students are like, they are just there with him. And then he talks about how he changed the culture. And we talked a lot about diversity and belonging. And we talked about just the kind of work environment. And by the time he was done, the students gave him a standing ovation. And I have to tell you, at Kellogg, you don't get standing ovations that often. And when he was done, the students were mobbed him. And he spent an hour after class. My class goes from 6.30 to 9.30 at night. And they spent another hour because everybody had questions. He was that engaging of a speaker. And the story was that compelling. A couple of weeks go by in the quarter and the news breaks. There's a house of cards. The company goes into receivership. The bank took it over, Scribe, the publishing company. And all these stories start to come out about the culture and Javan and he wasn't the great leader after all. And there was all these problems at the work. And they let go of the 140 employees. They let go of all but six. So now I have a dilemma. Should I tell my students? I think, yeah, you know, this is real world. This is real world. This is life. So I forward to my students the emails with links with the articles. And the class is the very next day. And wouldn't you know it, just coincidence, my co-author, Mert, is my speaker, is my guest lecturer that day. So Mert comes in. Now, if you don't know Mert, Mert is a really excitable, interesting, full of energy kind of guy. And I said to Mert, hey, Javon was here a couple weeks ago to this class. And I shared with the class everything that happened. What do you think? And they owed us about $17,000 in back royalty. Not the end of the world, but $17,000. And Mert's like, oh, that rat bastard. It's like, like that, I, 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 we're gonna sue him. We're gonna get lawyers. We're gonna fight. We're gonna get our money back. That guy owes us $17,000. He was a horrible CEO. And I let Mert sort of go on for a few minutes. And finally, Mert says, well, what do you think? And I said, I have a completely different point of view and perspective. And what I did 
is I pulled out my phone and I read to the class, to Mert and to the class, a text exchange I had the night before, the day that the news came out, with Javon. Because you know who your friends are, not when things are going good. You know who your friends are when times are tough. So I wrote Javon, and if you don't mind, I'll read you a little bit of the text exchange. I said, hey, Javon, just saw the announcement. I'm so sorry to hear the news. You should hold your head up high, my friend. You built a great company. Just wanted you to know that I'm thinking of you and always around to help you if I can. That's what I sent to him. He wrote back instantly. He goes, Mark, I sincerely appreciate the kind words and message. Given what you shared with me about your family when I was there in Chicago with you, I'm comfortable sharing the following. This is the absolute darkest, in all caps, time of my life. And you know some of my life. If it wasn't for my family, I don't know what I would do. My wife and children. Pains me to say that, but I'm hurting to my core. I'm literally praying for a blessing from God to rectify this. We right-sized the company to stop the money burn, but now I desperately need an investor to quickly buy us. Again, I truly appreciate your message and kind words. Thank you. And I wrote back, I understand. I do. Your family needs you. Be strong. I know it's hard to believe in the moment, but this too shall pass. Patrick, your words. Here's the thing. How you leave is every bit as important as how you enter an organization. Now is not the time to hide and put your head in the sand. You have plenty of time to heal, to take an honest retrospective of what you did right and what you did wrong. You don't have to pretend or hold up an image. Now is the time for brutal honesty and transparency. It's okay. Over-communicate with all your stakeholders, your employees, your investors, your authors, your suppliers. Be totally honest and transparent. Tell them what is really going on. Ask for help. This is me editorializing. Most CEOs don't ask for help. You have built up a lot of goodwill over the years. Now is the time to call on it. Don't beat yourself up. You will have plenty of time to do that later. I believe in you. Lead with openness and integrity and hold your head up high. I'm also around anytime if you want to talk. So that's what I sent to him. And Mert, who just a few minutes before was like, ah! took a deep breath. And he looked at the class and he said, this is why it's helpful to have a mentor, to have somebody you trust to have a voice of reason by your side. And we're talking about it with the class. And one of my students asked this incredible question. And the student, she said, Professor Ackler, given everything that you've been through in your career, in your life, are you more or less cynical today than when you were our age? when you were late 20s, early 30s? What a great question. Are you more or less cynical? And I knew immediately what my answer was. But I paused 
I gave it a second. I collected my thoughts. I wanted to give that question its due because it was a great question. And I answered, hands down, I am less cynical today than I was when I was your age. I am not naive. I have had bad partners. I have seen plenty of people lie and cheat and steal. I have seen bad behavior. I have been on the receiving end of it. I have seen corporations do bad things. But here's the thing. In my experience, most people are good. Most people try to do the right thing. Are there bad people out there? Of course there are bad people out there. And most companies, you know, most companies don't purposefully try to do bad things, unethical things. Of course, there are that do. And I choose, you know, Patrick, you said earlier, view life through a lens of abundance rather than through a lens of scarcity. And I choose. It's a choice. I choose to look at life as an innovator through that lens, that optimistic lens of abundance. And I give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, if you violate my trust, and we're going to talk a lot about trust in a second, obviously we're done. Okay, those were my three stories. And I have one question before we go on. And the one question I have for you is, what is your favorite smell from childhood? I think about that for a second. What is your favorite smell from childhood? Patrick, you raised your hand. What's your favorite smell from childhood? Ruby Field. Okay. Awesome. All right. Who else? Somebody over here. Coffee. Fresh and beautiful coffee. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Wet dog. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, the smell of the grass, the freshly cut, yeah. <laughs> you know, for me, it was my grandmother was from Hungary. She was a phenomenal baker. And, you know, when I was like five, I would be hanging on her skirts and she'd be uh, cooking up these apple fritters, little bits of dough with apple put inside. We put it in the fryer. And then when it was coming out hot, she put powdered sugar on top of it, right? So why is that an interesting question? It kind of, you know, once you get to know somebody, even a little bit, you start to give the benefit of the doubt. You start to give them a little bit of trust, right? You know, something that we share in common, I don't care, man, woman, black, white, Republican, Democrat, whatever your religion may be, every human being on the planet, something that we can share in common is a smell from childhood. And by the way, when you elicit that, you hear that, ah, right? You're like, ah, like, then you start, because here's what I know. Anytime I start falling into the trap, we collectively start falling into the trap of us versus them, bad things happen. So the benefit of the doubt is really powerful. All right, now let's go into the inevitable economics of trust. 
I am always a long-term thinker. And I think that trust, trust with your employees, your customers, your partners, I think trust is so important. And it's like a muscle that you have to practice and use. It's not just words on a poster in the lunchroom. It's something that is just like ingrained. And I believe that the best CEOs are not just visionary leaders, they're servant leaders. One of the interesting things when I wrote the book, I always ask CEOs, we interview dozens and dozens, I ask the question, will your employees come to work for you the next company that you start? Will your customers buy from you? Will your partners want to partner with you? Will the company that bought you want to buy your next company? What is your legacy? What's the value of relationships? And how do you think? Like, do you think about just measuring transactions or do you think about the lifetime value of a customer? Because if you're thinking in the long term in the lifetime value of a customer, you're willing to invest. Invest in that relationship. Okay, so we talked about this. You know, here in Chicago, a couple years back, there was the Outcome Health. You guys, everybody familiar with what happened with Outcome Health? I thought that was so sad and so unnecessary. I was friends with Rishi and Shraddha. I went to Shraddha's wedding. There is this grayness out there in the world of corporate world. And I always say the same thing. I say, like, if you have to ask yourself the question, should I do something? Don't do it. And I'll give you an example. I'm sitting next to my friend Stephen here at Redbox. There were two co-founders, dear, dear friends of mine, Greg Kaplan and Mitch Lowe. And Greg, we got to a place where we got pretty big, even for Hollywood standards. And we were buying over a billion dollars, eventually $2 billion of movies. And all of a sudden, the buyers at the studios were lavishing us with gifts, like because we were spending a lot of money. And it, it was getting out of hand because they were like, if we put movies in the kiosk, it was worth a lot to studios. And so Greg came up with this, we had to come up with a policy. He came up with the policy of, we cannot accept anything over $100. So if there's a gift over $100, we can't accept it. The very next day, now Greg grew up in New York and in Long Island. He was a football fan and his team was the New York Giants. That year, the Giants were in the Super Bowl. One of our key vendors was Verizon because we had 46,000 kiosks and we were putting Verizon wireless uh, routers and the Verizon was sponsoring the Super Bowl that year. And they called us, called Greg up and he said, hey, how would you like to be our guest at the Super Bowl? It's the Giants, all expenses paid. Greg's like, no, no. <laughs> He's just like, and he said no, because he realized if you're the leader, you got like, like okay, the answer's no. Mitch, on the other hand, do you guys know MoviePass? Yeah, Mitch is in Mexico right now, avoiding extradition. He's indicted 
And, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to Greg about it. I caught, and, and Mitch is a dear friend. And when those announcements came out, I emailed Mitch to voice some support. He definitely committed a crime. And I called up Greg and I said, were you surprised? And Greg went, nah. He goes, look, Mitch, I love Mitch. We all love Mitch. Great guy. But, you know, the world was gray. And if there's, you know, I would say, no, we can't do this. Mitch would go, you sure? And, you know, he got away from him. I don't think he purposely or intended or started to do something criminal, but the gray world kind of ganged up on him. So trust matters. Let's talk about Facebook or Meta. So here's a case study of greed. I'm really curious your opinion on this. So show of hands. Who still actively uses Facebook? Raise your hand if you're still actively using Facebook. Few, yeah, right? I would guess, what do you think? About 10% of the audience maybe-ish, right? Do you use it less today than you did a year ago? Are your kids using it? No, right? No way, no how. Maybe for scheduling, like group scheduling, calendaring, maybe, right? Why? Why? So, I look, I think Meta has fundamentally violated our trust. So, the question is really threefold. First, are you a publisher or are you a platform? Now, the tech companies make the argument that they're a platform. They're not responsible for the content that's on top of their platform. They're not a publisher. Maybe. Maybe. User manipulation. Do you ever get the email that says, oh, you haven't been on the site for three days. Here's the post that you're missing. Here's everything. You, like, you know, you're constantly have armies of people whose only job is to get you to spend more time on their platform. Why? Because you're not the customer. You're the product. You're the product. What are, what are they selling? They're selling your eyeballs. They're selling your attention. You, in your gut, know you're being manipulated. You just know it. And they've been bad custodians of your data, our collective data. Whether they're outright selling it or they have had data breaches, they just haven't been a trustworthy partner. But let me give you a little historical context. This is not the first time throughout American history, whether we're talking colonial days or Civil War days, have politicians lied? Hmm. Yes, yes, yes. There's been no shortage of manipulation and falsehoods through time immemorial. Here's a little bit of history for you. You guys remember the Spanish-American War, Civil War, in the late 1890s, right? You remember that war? This is a picture of the New York Journal, Joseph Pulitzer's New York Journal from 1895, I think it is. And the whole thing is, remember the Maine, the sinking of the Maine. We're going to give you $50,000 if you can give us proof. $50,000 in 1895, I don't know what that equivalent is here, but I'm sure it's many millions of dollars. Like, they were just constantly making up stuff to push us into war. 
because they knew that, like they knew then, like we know now that blood and guts sell, that the more sensational, that sells papers. Well, what happened? We went into war and people died and the country kind of got fed up. Now you probably don't know this, but after that war, the people were complaining bitterly to their Congress people. This is in a world where Congress actually functioned. And Congress went to the journalist community and they said, clean up your act. Clean up your act or we're going to do it for you. And so the journalist community got together and they created a journalistic ethic. And by the way, have you ever heard of the Pulitzer Prize? The ultimate spin move, right? Pulitzer Prize promoting the best excellence in journalism from the guy who was the worst of his day. So over the course of years, there's a journalistic standard. I just happened to pick this. This is from the 1960s. This is our local Chicago Tribune, which certainly had a bias, a Republican bias in this case, a more conservative bias. But let's look at a newspaper in the 1960s. Did they publish news? Sure. In fact, they had an army of people publishing news. At one point, I think they had like over 300 writers. Did they have editorial? Of course. Did they have op-eds where other people wrote in? Sure. What happens if an op-ed was submitted that violated their journalistic standards? Did it get published? No, it did not get published. Did they have advertising on the platform? Sure, they had big display ads and they also had want ads. I don't know if you're old like me. Remember when a third of the newspapers were want ads, right? Remember those days, right? And if something violated their journalistic integrity, did an ad, they were getting paid. It was an ad that was their business, collect money. Would they publish an ad in the 1960s if it violated their journalistic code of ethics? No, no. And what would you do if you were a subscriber to the Chicago Tribune in the 1960s and you found out that the Russian government or the Chinese government or the Iranian government was posting disinformation in your paper and your paper was publishing it, what would you do? You would cancel your subscription. So trust. So the way I think about it is trust is both offense and defense. Look, it's really hard to be a startup. And the only reason why startups exist is because large companies falter. Large companies have gigantic advantage. They have advantage in brand, in trust, in sales and distribution. But when a large company falters, they falter for many reasons. So Patrick, you were just talking about, well, maybe we don't have to do innovation. I could argue that very strenuously but it, trust creates gaps, it creates opportunities, and trust is also defense. Because people are creatures of habit, and look, it's really hard to build trust, it's really easy to lose it, but it's really hard to change consumers' behavior. It's really hard. That's why banks 
And financial institutions like to get people in their 20s as customers because they know that if we can get you in your 20s, you tend to stick around. Unless you break your promises. So brands make promises to their users. Trusted brands keep those promises and that creates longevity. And the way I think about promises are like values or experience. So I wanted to give some concrete examples. So here's some examples. Nike, the promise is inspiration, or meta belonging, or New York Times, the truth, or Amazon convenience, or Apple quality, right? So these are values or experiences, and they create loyalty. But what happens when you break those promises? So like Meta, you don't belong, you are the product. Or Uber's offline, or Apple purposely degrading battery quality. And on and on, right? And so the world changes. And this is why innovation matters. Because one of my favorite sayings is, you might not like change, but you're going to like disruption a whole lot less, right? So here's the Fortune 10 companies in 1969 versus today. You'll notice the list with the exception of ExxonMobil. It helps if you have a natural resource. It's completely different. In fact, I was just looking at IBM on the list. I was talking to somebody yesterday about IBM. I don't know if anybody here works for IBM. If you do, I apologize in advance. How did they blow it? They just constantly blew it. Like not only with the personal computer and software and operating systems, but what about AI? So this whole, we're gonna talk a lot about AI today. They had Watson for God's sakes. For the last, I mean, for 20 years, they've been the leaders in AI. How could they have, like it's almost criminal that they are in the position that they're in today. So here's what I like to think. The best, you know, I was trying to think, I was looking really hard, can I find a proxy for my thesis, which is companies that really do care about and value trust, have culture of trust, empower their employees, will outperform. And so my proxy for this was the best companies to work for from Fortune magazine. And this was an example of the Russell 3000 versus their best company index and how that outperforms. So I'll sum it up with trusted companies have more motivated and energized employees and higher retention rates of those employees, more delighted, loyal, and satisfied customer. They're more agile, resistant, resilient organizations, and they have better outcomes. So that's my trust. Thank you. Well, as you can tell, Mark is an inspiring, accomplished leader. And his talk really outlines the importance that trust has on an organization's success. Join us next time for another thought-provoking discussion from innovation leaders around the country. To stay connected with the Innovative Executives League and explore upcoming events and visionary leaders, visit our LinkedIn page or head over to our website at www.dragonspears.com podcast. You can also find us on popular podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. This episode was made possible by the support of Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.